Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. The show of support from you, our valued listeners, has been overwhelming. You've already raised enough to pay for most of this year's worth of episodes. If you can afford a little something, please click the link to the GoFundMe in the show description. Thank you so very much. Today, Nate welcomes back Peter Garalnik to discuss Sun Records and the birth of rock and roll. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Peter Goralnik to discuss his new book, The Birth of Rock and Roll, the illustrated story of Sun Records, written with Colin Escott, with Ford by Jerry Lee Lewis. Peter, welcome back. Well, thanks. It's great to be back. Well, tell us about this book. It's a beautiful coffee table edition. It'll go great with your Beatles anthology and any of your other rock and roll collectible books. How did it come together, and what's the general gist of it? Well, it was it was just something that kind of appeared one day. Um, a woman named Karen Gerhard, who's the editor of the book and the editor of the, the editor of the publisher, called me up and um, you know asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. My natural inclination is always to say no. I'm a no boy, you know. And she talked for about five minutes, and I was sold. But I mean, it was to me it was sort of an exciting thing. But what was most exciting about it? And what was most fun about it, it was it was really fun to do, was that it came out just the way that Karen said it would. And in so many instances, when you go into something which you don't totally control, you think, well, you know, if it works out the way I hope it will, that's great. Well, this and the Sam Phillips exhibit that we did at the Country Music Hall of Fame are two of the few things that worked out exactly the way, I, you know, I had hoped they would. And it was also, it was great to work with Colin, whom I've known, um, liked, uh, admired, respected for, I don't know, 35 years or so, but we never worked together. And although we didn't write together, we wrote on different ends of the, you know, of the, uh, of the book, but, um, but it was great. We just collaborated all the way through. The main thing though, was as Sam Phillips said, if it ain't fun, it's not worth doing. And this just looked like, looked like it would be fun from the start. And it was. It's great fun to read. And now let's get a little capsule history of Sun Records. Tell us about Sam Phillips how he got started in the recording business and what he did before he started Sun Records. And then how did he segue into being a label owner? Well, Sam fell in love with music. Sam really put it all down to, to his ears. And from the time he was a little kid working out in the cotton fields, uh, his father rented a, uh, uh, you know, a farm, a plantation, and he worked out in the fields with uh, um, sharecroppers, both black and white. But he said he could hear, you know, he could hear everything. He could hear the sound of the whippoorwill. He could say, hear the sound of a hose spading through the dirt. He could hear it hit rock. He could hear 
the uh, men and women singing in the fields. And all of it just added up to, to his, a really expansive view of humanity. Um, one of the things that he most fell in love with was uh, black music, although he loved every type of music. And uh, as a kid, when he was 16, uh, on his way to Dallas, to a prayer meeting in Dallas with his brother Judd, he insisted that they drive down Beale Street because he had heard so much about it. And it wasn't just the sounds and the sights of Beale Street. It was just something he said, it was the greatest place in the world because every single person who was there was there because they wanted to be there. I mean, it just was a celebratory spirit. And he was determined to live in Memphis. And when he moved back, when he moved to Memphis uh, in um, 1945, he got a job at WREC, the radio station. You know, you're really testing me here because I wasn't ready for this. So I hope I'm not just <laughs> going on and just running No, you're doing, doing great. But oh. uh, he got a job at the radio station and uh, he was recording. Uh, he was putting the big bands on from the Sky Room uh, at uh, the Peabody, where the station was also. And they were broadcasting big bands like Glenn Miller uh, and um, just uh, Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey. And they had two bands, and uh, but all these, all these big bands. And he engineered these things and put them out. But this wasn't what he wanted to do. What he wanted to do, the Peabody was sort of living in high cotton. What he wanted to do was to... Uh, was to broadcast the sounds of Beale Street as he had heard them and as he, and as he had heard them as a kid growing up in the, in the fields of Florence, Alabama, or outside of Florence, Alabama. So he, um, he just was determined to register those sounds. And he opened a little studio right at the beginning of January of 1950 with the determination to record black music, black artists, people who did not have any opportunity anywhere else. And that's how he began. That's how he started recording. He opened the doors of Sun Records. Uh, the um, the artists were reluctant at first, but he kept the studio doors open. There were no other studios in Memphis. There were almost none in the Mid-South. And out of that eventually came the label Sun Records. At first, he had no interest in the business. What he wanted to do was simply to put the music out there. But uh, and he sold the music to the Bahari brothers on the West Coast, uh, who had the RPM and the uh, modern labels, and um, then eventually to Leonard Chess at Chess Records in 1951. The first record that Leonard Chess put out uh, was Rocket 88, which was uh, really by Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm. But he put it, but it was came out under the name of Jackie Brenston and the Delta Cats, and uh, Rocket 88 was just a hit beyond imagining. <laughs> And then he quickly uh, gets to work with a number of other blues talents. Like Ike Turner had come all the way from St. Louis, but there were a number in the Memphis area that Sam got to work with early on that are straight up Hall of Famers. I mean, tell us about how he just Sam discovered Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King and how he worked with them and why they kind of escaped his clutches. Okay, well, just to back up a little, uh, the Bahari brothers had signed B.B. King to their label, RPM. And since B.B. King was in Memphis, he was on uh, WDIA, which was the mother station of the Negroes. That was what it was called. It was the first all-black station in the country, or, or that was its claim to fame. And uh, so B.B. King recorded several times in at the Sun Studio. Or it was never called the Sun Studio. It was 706 Union. It was a Memphis recording service. He told uh, Ike Turner, who was, I think, a 17 or 18-year-old kid growing up in Clarksdale, Mississippi, 
And he told Ike Turner that Ike Turner had to check out this studio. Ike Turner didn't even know what a studio was at that point, but he had two bands in Memphis. He had a society band, he had a small combo. And he brought the small combo, the Kings of Rhythm, uh, to the studio with some difficulty. I mean, with many uh, uh, stops from by the police, uh, simply for driving while black, and also with a number of flat tires. But he showed up in the studio and they recorded Rocket 88, which has often been called the first rock and roll record. Um, it was really through the success of uh, Rocket 88, probably, that Sam's studio got on the map. But for but Sam, but Howlin' Wolf, almost shortly, very shortly after uh, Rocket 88 came out, uh, Sam heard Howlin' Wolf on the radio, on uh, broadcasting over KWEM. He had a 15-minute show on KWEM's, KWEM uh, selling agricultural feed and equipment, and, um, but uh, but and singing too. And Sam said that uh, when he first heard uh, Howlin' Wolf, he went on a bad hookup. We could barely hear him. That's when the devastation came over him. He said, "This is where the soul never dies." And this was what he had been aiming for all along. That sound. I mean, Rocket '88 was great. Rocket '88 had a tremendous amount of rhythm in it. Had a distorted guitar sound because of uh, they had broken their amp on the way up to Memphis in one of their many stops, having to pull the amp out of the uh, out of the trunk and dropping it on the pavement. Um, he had an original sound there, but what Howlin' Wolf was singing, this was the music that Sam most wanted to record. It was uh, Lightning Hopkins and John Lee Hooker had had considerable success with that kind of down-home blues and what Sam called gut pocket blues in the last couple of years. But that was what appealed to him most. And Howlin' Wolf was just beyond anything that he ever did before or since. The pinnacle of his work in the studio from his point of view. I mean, he just, like I say, he said, this is when the soul of man uh, was born. And he, um, uh, when he sent off the first record, How Many More Years and uh, Moaning at Midnight, uh, to a DJ in Nashville. He said, this is the strangest record I believe I ever heard and the best. So that's, uh, he called Howlin' Wolf. He said, of all the artists he ever recorded, including Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Junior Parker, Rufus Thomas, of all of them, he said that Howlin' Wolf was the most profound of all the artists he ever recorded, with the sole exception of Charlie Rich, someone who was totally different in approach and manner from, uh, from Howlin' Wolf. Uh, a much more sophisticated sort of jazz-oriented musician from a completely different background, although he was from Arkansas. But uh, Charlie Rich and and, uh, and Howlin' Wolf were the two most profound, because that's what Sam was listening for. He was listening for a sound and for a feeling that was beyond any what was just on the surface. Well, let's go ahead and hear our first track. And this is actually from B.B. King, produced by Sam Phillips. This is She's Dynamite. B.B. King with Sam Phillips, She's Dynamite. That's, I think, the second or third song on your list of 70 songs, although my list has 84. We'll get to that in a minute. But 
She's Dynamite. I just had to play because I hadn't heard that particular track before. I expect my listeners hadn't either. And it really makes the case that, I mean, you, you subtitled your biography of Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll, and hearing Rocket 88 and then hearing B.B. King, She's Dynamite, and then, you know, the rockabilly work he would become world famous for later on. It really feels like there's a Sam Phillips sound and it's rocked up and it's boogie woogie. And even somebody like B.B. King, who's not known for that, would get um, sucked into that vortex when they were recording with Sam Phillips. Is that fair? Well, She's Dynamite was a complete departure from for B.B. King, and it's not something he ever went back to. His earlier records, and I think he had one or two after She's Dynamite, they were all much more, I guess, conventional blues. And then by the time uh, he got to, um, uh, he left Sam and uh, and the Bahari Brothers started recording him on his own, and he had a national hit. By that time, he found a sound of his own. But prior to uh, She's Dynamite, he was singing what Sam felt were just too polite, sort of too contained. Uh, the blues were just too contained and too... too uh, and Sam brought the wild man out. And then... Yeah, and Sam just was looking, and, and you can hear uh, how she di She's Dynamite really echoes uh, the sound of Rocket 88. I mean, how much Sam was not just taken with the sound, but his belief that that sound uh, was going to cross all, uh, you know, musical, cultural, racial ba barriers, all boundaries, uh, and uh, and reach out to an audience that was just as much black as it was white, that that had no conventions to it. And to a degree, he was right. I mean, the Rocket 88 sold over 100,000 copies, which is a huge sale at the time for an R&B hit. At the same time, and that it also shows there was a considerable component of white sales, but they were under the counter white sales. It didn't make the pop charts. But what Sam was talking about, even in 1951, when he recorded Rocket 88, and I believe also She's Dynamite, uh, when uh, what Sam was talking about to the newspapers, to the commercial Memphis Commercial Appeal on the Memphis Parsimeter, was about a music that would transcend all categories of music that would appeal as much to black as, as it did to as much to white as it did to black or as much to black as it did to white and he and that in a way was a prediction of what rock and roll would someday and not too long uh would someday become and and sam doesn't make he's not happy with the money he makes on those early records as great as as they were so he forms his own record label. First, he forms one with Dewey Phillips, the famous uh, DJ there in Memphis, called It's the Phillipses, I guess. Is that how you say it with the apostrophe at the end? I don't and know. Then, I think I'd just say It's the Phillips, you know. It's the Phillips, yeah. And, and then... Apostrophe. What to argue about that? <laughs> and, and Dewey is no businessman, so that doesn't last very long. Sam then creates Sun Records, and, the, you know, the iconic label is designed there in Memphis. And... He does get a hit fairly quickly with Rufus Thomas with Bearcat, but once again, there's no payday. What went wrong for Sam and Rufus Thomas with Bearcat? Well, the problem was with Bearcat was that it was an answer song um, to um, Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog, which was a huge hit, a number one hit, and a really, um, as you say, iconic hit. Uh, and Rufus Thomas's was an answer song. And up until that time, up until 1953, answer songs were copyrighted under the name of the composer of the answer song and they were published by whoever published that that songwriter but that was challenged in 1953 um by the father of uh 
uh, Linda Eastman, Linda McCartney. Uh, was it Lee Eastman, the father? Who's the father? Yeah, Lee Eastman. Okay, well, that, he uh, took up the cause of um, intellectual property, uh, which is a very big cause, a very capacious cause today, and very uh, a very considerable source of many lawyers' incomes. Uh, but he took that up, and so John Roby, who had put out um, Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog and owned the publishing on it, Lion Publishing. I can't believe you're making me go, you know, it's it's amazing to me that this is in my head, but I'm doing the best I can. But uh, anyway, he, uh, Don Roby sued. Don Roby was a very tough guy, but Sam responded to the lawsuit, but he lost, he went to Houston, responded in court to the lawsuit, he lost the lawsuit, he lost all of the uh, royalties that would have come from the publishing on uh, on Bearcat. So in effect, he lost almost all of the profits on the record. So that was a considerable disappointment to him, and I'm sure to Rufus, too. And then the next sort of big landmark recording that Sun puts out, they put out a variety of, of different blues artists, harmonica artists, James Cotton, Simma Howlin Wolf's band makes some records. Uh, Roscoe Gordon does some cool stuff. But the Prisoners are the group that get Sam and some Sun records in the paper and bring the them to the attention of a young Elvis Presley. What's the deal with the prisoners? Why was that a news story? And how did Sam get them to record for Sun? Well, the, the uh, prisoners, Sam had a uh, partnership very briefly with um, Jim, uh, you remember Jim's name? Bullet? Yeah. Sam had a um, partnership uh, very briefly with a Nashville entrepreneur and record uh, record label owner named Jim Bullet, who had had his own Bullet uh, Bullet label, and who had a huge hit with Near You, really big across the board hit with Near You, I think around 48 or 49. But Jim Bullet had fallen on somewhat hard times, and he went into partnership with Sam for a very brief amount of time, and he had a connection uh, with a number of uh, Nashville. Um, DJs and uh, and song publishers, and that was what led Sam to the prisoners, who were five prisoners uh, uh, incarcerated in the Tennessee State Prison in Nashville. Now it happened that, that at that time, um, the uh, uh, governor of Tennessee, Frank Clement, was a great believer in uh, in rehabilitation, something which was even less popular then than it is today. I mean, basically, the prison system has existed for at least the last 70 years as a model of incarceration, not rehabilitation. But Frank Clement was a um, a progressive politician, you might say, who believed in prisoner rehabilitation, was determined to see it through. So he actually set up a set up a program with this group, this uh, uh, gospel and R&B group, mainly R&B, but. Um, would uh, would sing, uh, you know, in in the area around, would go out of the prison and sing at various civic clubs, sang on the radio, uh, and um, uh, and became known. And that's how it became known to Sam. And Sam went to uh, to Nashville, met with Governor Clement, used all of his persuasive powers to try to persuade the governor to let the prisoners record. Uh, at his studio, which he considered his little laboratory of sound, that's what Sam called it, in Memphis, at the Memphis Recording Service. So Governor Clement agreed to that. The uh, 
the prisoners were sent over uh, in an, with an armed guard to the studio, and they worked all day on getting this one song, or they, they did two songs, but they focused on this one song, Just Walking in the Rain, uh, which was Johnny Bragg, the lead singer's uh, main vehicle. You know, it was, it was what he was known for. And um, they spent most of the day, there was actually a reporter from the Memphis Commercial Appeal, maybe it was the Memphis Press Seminar. There was actually a reporter from the Memphis newspaper who was present for the for the uh, session and and described it, and um, by the end of the day, I mean there was very little change in a sense for you and me, uh, maybe not to some of your listeners, but uh, at least to me, there probably was not all that much change between where they started out and where they ended up on the song, and yet the song had what Sam wanted at the end as the as the reporter from the press seminar described. Uh, and they put it out, and it was actually Sam's third hit of the summer. He had uh, Rufus Thomas, he had Little Junior Parker, and he had The Prisoners, which really jumped out of the box, sold 30000 right off the bat. Johnny Bragg um, modeled himself on uh, the great tenor singer for, wait a minute, <laughs> feed me this here, okay? I'm not sure who he modeled on, uh, himself on, but let's go ahead and hear it. Let's hear Just Walking in the Rain by The Prisoners. Just walking in the rain Getting soaking wet Torture in my heart By trying to forget Just walking in And that was Just Walking in the Rain by the Prisoners, where they were imitating uh, the Ink Spots to a large degree. Bill Kinney, the great uh, Ink Spots tenor, I want to say, was the model for Mr. Bragg of the Prisoners. And then once he gets that attention um, from the local hits and the, and the news coverage, then he started to get some white hangers on around the studio. And even before Elvis arrives, the way you do the playlist, I'm kind of jumping myself ahead of myself because I haven't talked about the playlist yet. But when you do the playlist and you listen to the songs that you picked out in order, when Scotty Moore's guitar appears at the beginning uh, of, of the song he recorded with Doug Poindexter, My Kind of Carrying On, it's like a ray of sunshine coming in. You've had all this blues, and then all of a sudden, here's this guitar style that's immediately recognizable to us because of our familiarity with Scotty Moore's guitar style on the Elvis Presley records. But it's it's just amazingly powerful to hear Scotty Moore's guitar, which, you know, he was studying Charlie Christian. He was a student of, of the great jazz guitarist Charlie Christian, but it still managed to sound completely different from any of the blues guitar uh, that we've heard so far in the set. So to what extent do you think Sam kind of knew what he was doing when he started to cultivate country performers like Scotty Moore? Is he actively looking for the blend, or is it just serendipity that's bringing these elements together? I think to some extent it's serendipity. I think Scotty, who idolized Chet Atkins and played in that really um, thumb-picking style, you know, that Chet Atkins had pioneered, um, he and he, Scotty talked about how he and Sam would get together. See, Scotty was a very, he was a wonderful guy. He was very ambitious. He was very perceptive. And he and uh, Sam would get together 
at the restaurant next door, Ms. Taylor's, and they would sit, he, Scotty pointed out to me the booth they would sit in, and they would talk about the future, and he said it wasn't so much that Sam knew exactly what form the future was going to take, but he knew there was something coming, and that's what they, and they talked about that all the time. And it wasn't, Scotty wasn't contributing a lot to the conversation by his own account. It was Sam who sort of had the, the, this, this vision, but it was an unformed vision. So I think, you know, you say, was it serendipity? I mean, to some extent it was serendipity. I don't think he was going in one particular direction because he was recording Dr. Ross at the same time, Dr. Ross's boogie. He was recording gospel a little bit. He was recording um, Harmonica Frank who was like an old-time medicine show entertainer who did some blues but did all these old, uh, as uh, Sam said, he, some of the jokes he told were old when, you know, my grandfather was born or something. But um, but it was he was recording all kinds of things, and they all struck his fancy, and he, all, he put everything he had into them. But it was really, uh, uh, Scotty turned out to be the vehicle by which he got Elvis Elvis Presley in the studio. I mean, he first he had Elvis record a demo that had come in from Nashville through Jim Bullitt, more or less, uh, called "Without You," and he didn't it didn't work out. It wasn't quite um, what he wanted or what he expected uh, Elvis's version. But then uh, he continued to think, and he was prodded by his assistant, his associate. Uh, you know, really his partner in, in everything but the music, uh, Marion Keisker, who was the sole other employee, the only employee of the station. He and Marion were the only people at the station. And Marion was quite taken with Elvis, who stopped by, I don't know how often, but, you know, let's say every few days, every week, to see if Mr. Phillips was interested in anything. And Marion, uh, you know, kept his, Elvis's name in Sam's mind. And uh, one day he called up, uh, he said to Scotty, and, Scott, and, and Marion also got Scotty's, uh, Scotty's mind on this kid. Uh, Scotty, this, Scotty was in a group of Starlight Wranglers, but they didn't travel. I mean, the lead singer w wasn't interested in traveling. I think maybe he was a baker. I'm not, there were a lot of bakers around at that time. Maybe he wasn't. But uh, so Scotty was looking for somebody to front a band in which he could play guitar, you know, and, uh, and, be a uh, co-leader and uh, so Sam said well right, why don't you try this kid out and that's uh, Elvis went over to Scotty's house for a kind of audition uh, Scotty lived over on Firestone Boulevard I think or near the Firestone plant where Bill Black worked Bill Black lived right around the corner the bass player he stopped by neither of them was all that impressed but the next night they went into Sun not even for a session it was for a an audition for sam sad scotty said he was worth an audition and that was the night that ended up with that's all right yeah which famously becomes elvis's first single and combined with a f version of blue moon in kentucky bill monroe's bluegrass classic but done in four four time and rocked up that becomes the famous first single that uh, i guess the acetate went down to dewey phillips at the radio station before they even had the b-side cut and Immediately, Elvis's career is off and running, and there's a vision of what Elvis is going to be. And it's this new sound, this mix of country and rhythm and blues that later becomes known as rockabilly. But it's not just like the record comes out and all of Sam's problems are over. In fact, Sam's problems um, only mount. But let's take a, a break to hear from our sponsor, and then Peter can tell us about the kind of 
business troubles that Elvis Presley caused for Sam Phillips and how he got out of that and how the next wave of Sun artists were financed by that decision. And so Sam Phillips has finally found uh, his knight in shining armor, his Elvis Presley, and they're immediately making a splash in the South, although they don't have national hits right away. But this creates problems. What is the problem with cash flow as an independent record uh, maker that makes it so hard to have an artist like Elvis Presley with an underfinanced company like Sun? Well, I think it's not just Elvis Presley. It's what you said. It's the whole issue of the independent record label. And, you know, the problem many people have said there's nothing that'll kill a label faster than a, than a big hit. And the reason is that you have to put all your money out up front. You know, you have to pay, put all your money out for the pressing plan, uh, for the pressing costs. You have to put all your money up for the d distribution. Uh, and you don't necessarily get your money back from the distributors. And particularly in that era, maybe now too, you know, distributors were not uh, infrequently would go out of business and they could go out of business owing you a lot of money when even a little money made a lot of difference. So uh, it, it wasn't, it was just the, the whole question of maintaining the, you know, the, the label uh, in any way. And Sam was recording bar mitzvahs, he was recording funerals, he was recording talent shows, he was doing everything he could to keep the studio, which meant keeping the label, in business. I mean, he was determined to do it, but it took a tremendous amount of determination for anybody at that time, little. And, and Sam Phillips, there wasn't anyone more determined uh, than Sam Phillips. Uh, one thing I should say about uh, Elvis is, uh, with That's All Right is what's so astonishing about the record, if you listen to it, is it just, it's not of any type. It's not, it, it, is, it doesn't follow any model. It has, you know, you could call it rockabilly, you, know, you could call it blues, you could call it anything you want to, but it really stands on its own as Elvis Presley music, as this uh, kind of, this song, which is almost timeless. And if you listen to it today, it's just as fresh as it was then, but in a way that defies uh, definition, I guess. And, um, and it, it, uh, uh, there's a purity to it. And it's almost, you know, what people refer to as folk music. I mean, it, it just has that, that timeless essence. But, uh, you know, Sam was, uh, his brother Judd had come into the company uh, after when, Judd, when Jim Bullitt left. Both Jim Bullitt and Judd were very short-lived partners. As Marion Keisker said, Sam was not a partner-type person. He was an extreme individualism, and he believed, as he always said, in individualism. And he would then say, in the extreme... And that's what he truly believed in. But it didn't make him the best partner and didn't make him really receptive to our two partners. So his brother Judd wanted to get his money out of the company. The company was in trouble almost as much because of the hits it was having as, as anything else. Uh, he couldn't pay Elvis uh, he, the royalties that would do Elvis, although he kept strict track of them. And uh, so in the fall of 55, in October of 55, Real, just, I don't know what it is, 14, 15 months after Elvis's first record came out in July of 54, uh, Elvis's manager, uh, Colonel Tom Parker, came along, or he had been there all along. He'd been promoting Elvis. He'd been putting Elvis out on tour. He had been effectively, in effect, been managing Elvis. And he, through dint of an enormous persuasion and great uh, uh, promotional efforts, got RCA to agree to the price 
that Sam had said he would take for Elvis, something he wouldn't in his wildest dreams, didn't believe he would ever get $40,000, the highest amount ever paid for a single uh, artist at that time. And RCA agreed to pay it. And uh, Colonel Parker put up his own money at first to secure um, the uh, the whole, hold on Elvis' services, services. But I think on November 23rd, maybe, I'm not sure if that's the right day, um, Elvis's contract, uh, Sam sold Elvis's contract through the agency of Colonel Parker to RCA. Uh, the, got $35,000 from South. The last $5,000 was for uh, to settle Elvis's royalties. And that allowed him to buy out his brother Judd and also to establish the company on on good ground on a good ground where he could go forward. And the first record he put out, uh, not more than well, it was not not much more than a month after he sold Elvis's contract, but he recorded it a little before that, was Kyle Perkins' Blue Suede Shoes, which was the biggest across the board hit up until that time. It hit number one on all three charts, our country, R and B and pop. Yeah, and, and Carl Perkins is just one of uh, a few artists that were drawn to Sun Phillips because of Elvis Presley's success that are already starting to click. You had Carl's amazing success with Blue Suede Shoes, which is kind of spoiled by a car accident shortly thereafter. So that kind of truncated Carl's time at the top, although he comes back healthy and, and records lots more songs, builds a great body of work. Uh, but, but never had another hit like Blue Suede Shoes. Yeah, nothing nothing like that. But he's also got Johnny Cash, who comes in and with the Tennessee Two establishes himself as a bona fide uh, hit country artist. And, and soon as, as having pop hits, produced by Sam's understudy, Cowboy Jack Clement. Tell us about Cowboy Jack and how he worked with Johnny Cash. Jack was just this wonderful guy, this kind of Shakespearean character. I mean, in his later years, you could see him as sort of Falstaffian, but he was so bright and so funny. I mean, I knew Jack forever, and he and Sam, he came in uh, in the summer of 56. Up until then, it was just uh, Sam and Marion, and Jack was the third. Uh, Or it's possible Bill Justice came in around the same time, who had a big hit with Raunchy, I think, the next year. But uh, Jack came in uh, with a record uh, by Billy Lee Riley that he uh, had cut for Fernwood, the Fernwood label, and he wanted Sam to master it. And um, Sam listened to it, and he was so taken with the record that he hired Jack Clement and wound up putting out the record. This was by Billy Billy Riley. And Billy Riley was yet another one. Everybody was drawn to Sun. All of these white country boys were drawn to Sun by Elvis. And it wasn't just by Elvis' success. It was by the sound of Elvis, which came across as so original uh, and so different and yet at the same time so familiar. I mean, it's Sleepy LaBeef, uh, who was not on Sun Records, uh, he told me that he was in Houston when he first heard That's All Right. And what grabbed him the most was the deep undercurrent of gospel that underlay the record. He recognized that from his own upbringing, and they all did. Jerry Lee Lewis did, Carl Perkins did, Billy Riley. But Jack went to, uh, Jack Clement went to work in the summer of 56, and he was just such a strikingly original, such a bright guy. Um, he came from a very from middle class family. I think his uncle was a dentist. His father sold insurance, but he just had the most the widest curiosity. And he was a very funny guy, but underneath a very serious guy. And he and Sam hit it off until Sam fired him for uh, I forget. He had a very funny term for it uh, a year or two later. But they remained friends for the rest of their lives, even though in many ways they were extremely different people. 
and they had great respect for each other. Uh, but uh, Jack began producing. Uh, I mean, it was Jack knew he had arrived at Sun when Sam finally gave him responsibility for recording. I think first Roy Orbison and then Johnny Cash, and he recorded one of the greatest songs that uh, John ever uh, sang, "Big River." That was that was one of uh, one of the first songs that he got to produce on Johnny Cash, and he became more and more integral uh, to Sun. Jack Clement did. Um, but it was really uh, the combination. It was such an odd combination because Jack was kind of, I don't know if he was a wise guy, but he was, he, he simply was, they were two people who existed on, on very, uh, very different platforms or something. But I think their, their sheer intelligence that both Sam Phillips and Jack Clement possessed uh, was something that gave them great respect for each other, even though they had monumental fights at times. And let's go ahead and hear some of that work. But this is uh, Johnny Cash singing Jack Clement's Big River. Now I taught the weeping willow how to cry. And I showed the clouds how to cover up a clear blue sky. And the tears that I cried for that woman are going to flood you, Big River. And I'm going to sit right here until I die. I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, Southern drawl. Then I heard my dream went back downstream. And that was Jack Clement's song, Big River, as performed by Johnny Cash in the Tennessee Two. And there's, you know, you mentioned Billy Riley. There's a whole wave of, of I guess you'd call him second tier Rockabilly artists on Sun. Roy Orbison comes in as a hit with Ubi Dooby. You've got Warren Smith, Sonny Burgess doing Redheaded Woman. Um, quite a nice little body of works being built, but it's really Jerry Lee Lewis who blows the doors off and has monumental success right there on Sun Records. No need to sell the contract. Jerry Lee is moving units right out the gate. He's matching what Carl Perkins had done with Blue Suede Shoes and what Elvis did at RCA with Heartbreak Hotel, where he's making a massive impact on the country charts, the R&B charts, and the pop charts. Tell us about Jerry Lee's run at Sun and what brought it to a premature end. Well, Jerry Lee came in like everybody else because he read about, not just about Elvis, but about Sam Phillips in a magazine, in a music magazine, and found out that Sam Phillips also was the producer of B.B. Um, King had produced B.B. King, and that he, he said to his father, Elmo, Jerry Lee did, this is the man we got to go see. He was 20 at the time. And so they sold all the eggs from their farm, uh, got enough money to drive to Memphis. He showed up at the, uh, at the studio at 706 Union Avenue, and Sam wasn't there. Um, Jack Clement was. So he auditioned for, for Jack. He, he told... Uh, I think Sally Wilburn was working as Marion's assistant at this point, and he told uh, he told Sally that uh, um, he he could play uh, piano like Chet, Chet Atkins played Wildwood Flower. And when Jack heard that, he said, "Well, that's interesting," and he immediately immediately recognized right off the bat uh, that uh, this was just an original, unique talent. I mean. Uh, the uh, Sam uh, Sam Phillips said about Jerry Lee, he has more innate talent than anyone I've ever met, you know, than anyone on God's green earth. And uh, I think it's true. I really think it's true. I don't think that anybody ever, 
added a recording studio with more talent. I don't want to say what's who had the most, but he there's no one who had more and more originality and more capability of adapting himself to more different styles and making it making each song that he recorded his own song, putting everything he had into that song. And in addition to that, being one of the most amazing live performers on a level with James Brown or Howlin' Wolf or Solomon Burke or anybody you can name. Um, as Jerry Lee said one time to me, since you know, who else do you know who could tour the South and play all these little black clubs with Jackie Wilson for 30 nights of one-nighters? Uh, who else do you know who could do that? What other white performer? There wasn't any. I mean, he's the only one I think who had the, who would have, who had the temerity, the boldness, and the talent to carry that off. But with his uh, second single with Whole Lot of Shaking, uh, which came about through his performing and trying to stretch his live set on. He was on his way to the Dallas uh, Big D um, Jamboree and um, stopped off in a little uh, club in Arkansas. And uh, he and uh, Roland James, the guitarist, and um, uh, J.M. Van Eaton, the drummer, um, they hadn't worked together live. They hadn't done much of anything live, and they ran out of songs after, or Jerry Lee ran out of songs that they knew together for, uh, you know, after maybe four or five songs, and they had a lot of time to fill. So Jerry Lee fell back on a song. He had started first started performing uh, when he was playing these little clubs and natchez with a uh, drummer, DJ drummer named Johnny Littlejohn, who featured the song in his act. And the song got such a reception, Roland James described the reception that a whole lot of shaking got. He, he said, the people went so crazy, all the dust started coming down off the ceiling and they kept stomping their feet and yelling, play that shaking song, play that shaking song. So Jerry Lee, Roland James, who was an incredible talent, an amazing person. He was like the Zen figure of rock and roll. I mean, everybody in the world should know, should know of uh, Roland James. But um, Jerry Lee Roland and uh, J.M. Van Eaton said, well, we got to take this to Sam. I mean, this song is obviously a hit. And they walked in and Sam said, yeah, you, you, you know, you record it. And what they recorded uh, sounds as if it sounds as fresh as that's all right. It sounds as if it must be the first take, but it wasn't the first take. I mean, the way that Jack Clement, for instance, who was either engineering, I mean, he and Sam were working together at this point. And the way that Jack Clement remembered it was his first take, bam, that was it. But that's not the case. I mean, there were several takes before the final take, but it sounds as clear and clean and spontaneous and fresh and free as anything you could ever imagine. And the song was out for several months, um, but uh, and it was doing pretty well, you know, the same way you described Elvis as being a hit in the Mid-South. I mean, it was doing pretty well in the South, quite well, but hadn't really exploded the way, uh, you know, the way it should have. So Sam, Sam felt rightly that it should be a big hit, but even more than Sam, his brother Judd, who had been a thorn in his side as a partner, as a short-life partner in, in Sun uh, a couple of years earlier, and who was in Florence selling used cars at this point, he heard Jerry Lee when he played at the Sheffield Community Center, and um, he just said he never heard anything like Sam. Jerry Judd was almost like a carbon copy of Sam, except he didn't walk as straight a line. But uh, but Judd just said he never heard anything like it. And he, he could put Jerry Lee Lewis on the map, and he took Jerry Lee to New York with Sam's money and Sam's permission and brought him into the Steve Allen show and without any supporting um, uh, he didn't have any publicity material. He didn't have a pitch to make. His entire pitch 
was Jerry Lee Lewis, have Jerry Lee play, you know, play a song. And uh, when Jerry Lee did play the song, the producer, the assistant producer heard him said, listen, don't go anywhere else. I'll give you, you know, let me give you $200. Or I don't remember how much money it was just to hold until Steve Allen hears it. And when he, and when Jerry Lee performed the song on, on Steve Allen, it's one of the most cataclysmic televised performances ever, along with Howlin' Wolf on Shindig in 1965, singing How Many More Years. I mean, two things which uh, you listeners should spend the rest of the day watching. But uh, it, it just, it the record then exploded and went to number one on, every, on everything and set Jerry Lee's career in motion. And then follows up without his Blackwell's Great Balls of Fire and Breathless, and then takes an ill-fated trip to England and it's discovered that his wife is 14 years old and his cousin, and he's a practicing bigamist. And basically, Jerry Lee never recovers. Sam sticks with him and actually even puts out uh, an instrumental by The Hawk on Phillips International Reco Records to try to keep things going um, and just can't. Like Jerry's asking price goes from $10,000 a night to $250 a night almost overnight. He does have a minor hit with the version of Ray Charles' What I Say uh, for Son in 1959 and ends up recording a ton of material with Sam um, that stays around, including this one that we'll play next. This is our last song of the day. And this is the direction that Jerry Lee Lewis would go in with Mercury Records in the late 60s. And this is a record that was actually released on Sun in the late 60s and for a hit. This is Jerry Lee Lewis, One Minute Past Eternity. When will my arms grow cold? When will your kiss grow old? When will I want to be free? Exactly one minute past eternity. When will I make you blue? Cheat and run around on you. Throw away the love you've given me. And that was One Minute Past Eternity, uh, the kind of country song that Jerry Lee Lewis would have many hits on Mercury Records in the late 60s. And so Sam ends up moving to a new studio, wants to have stereo capabilities, but it seems like he kind of loses interest. There's a wave of artists. Conway Twitty's there. Um, Roy Orbison is struggling to have a follow-up hit for Ubi Doobie, and Roy has a very clear vision of what he wants to do, and it's very much what he goes on to do for Monument Records in Nashville in the next few years. But it just never clicks. Like, Sam never really clicks again. And even working with Charlie Rich, who you've already discussed as one of the two artists that Sam Phillips has identified as the most profound talents he ever worked with, but he never got a cut on Charlie Rich that he was totally happy with. They had some minor hits with Lonely Weekends and and a few others. But what do you think it was with Charlie Rich and Sam Phillips that they never quite achieved what Sam thought they could? I think they did on Who'll the Next Fool Be and on several other songs. Who'll the Next Fool Be was the uh, he, yeah, the second session, I think, that Sam did at the studio in Nashville. He had put everything into... Uh, into um, building these two studios uh, in 60, 61, one in Memphis, one in Nashville. The one in Memphis is still in business, Sam Phillips recording. But, uh, and each of them challenged his, uh, or uh, gave him um, the satisfaction of sort of trying to realize his uh, sonic vision. And each of them was a great studio. 
And that was really the only thing that drew him back into the studio. He, he, he pretty much, he, his activity in music was from 50 to 60. And by the time he sold the label to Shelby Singleton, who put out One Minute Past Eternity about six years after it was you know, first recorded, uh, he was out of the business entirely. And his sons, Knox and Jerry, were running the studio. But with Charlie on this Fool and X Fool B, I think he really did achieve very much what he had wanted to. But what held him back, what inhibited him, was for one thing, I, it's it's like what Jerry Wexler, who was vice president of Atlantic Records, said. He said Sam Phillips, in a single decade of recording, recorded a millennium's worth of great music, and he did. But I think it wore he wore out. And he became more interested in the zinc mine that he invested in by 1959 or 60 than he was in the studio. But with Charlie Rich's uh, Fool and X Fool B, which I think was recorded in 61, I think that's when he opened the Nashville studio. But if I'm wrong, I apologize. But he, um, uh, he, he finally was able to get the moodiness of, of Charlie's music, get Charlie to express himself. Charlie was very inhibited. Charlie uh, did not like performing live. He had a kind of agoraphobia. Uh, he had another name for it, but a fear of crowds. He felt very uncomfortable. He was very self-conscious all through his life, even after he became a superstar, um, country music superstar. But he, uh, uh, with Hool and X Fool B, I think Charlie, uh, Charlie achieved something and uh, just a classic of recording, and Sam felt satisfied with that. But the thing I think that also that held him back with Charlie was Charlie was so talented in so many different ways, and it was very hard to channel him. Unlike Jerry Lee, who was just like a, what do you call it, a, not a heat missile, but, you know. A, Heat-seeking uh, missile? Yeah, it, it, Jerry Lee Lewis was like a heat-seeking missile, just seeking its target. I mean, every time he went in the studio, every song he sang, he just felt like he was heading somewhere. But Charlie had a lot of directions in which to go. And when we recorded um, his final album, Pictures and Paintings, at the Sam Phillips studio, uh, with uh, both Knox and Jerry there, when we recorded the album, the intention, my intention, or Charlie's intention, was to do something that expressed his deepest downside, his jazz side, his blues side. And he was still self-conscious in the studio, but I think he achieved it to a considerable extent. He was able to record the music that meant the most for him in a way that was kind of both laid back and intense. Um, but Sam always faulted himself for not being able to bring out that side of Charlie. He went to see Charlie. Charlie may have been the only artist that, you know, Sam regularly went to went to see and he went to a little uh, club maybe called a nightclub or something like that but he uh he would go to see charlie all the time because he was so taken with his music but he couldn't get that he couldn't get charlie to relax enough and he couldn't get that feeling in the studio that he wanted to get and he did blame himself he felt that he was, should have devoted himself more to charlie's career but by then he was almost out of the business <laughs> And tell us about the afterlife of Sun Records. He sells it to a man named Shelby Singleton in the late 60s. And how does that sort of manage to keep the Sun brand name alive in a way that it wouldn't have if he had sold to, say, RCA or Columbia? Well, he believed in the individual. You know, as I said, he believed in individualism in the extreme. And uh, Shelby Singleton was the last of the, one of the last of the independents, and he was a strongly independent person. He's not necessarily someone that everybody would want to go into business with him. And Sam went into business with him with his eyes wide open. 
but he just loved the hell out of Shelby because Shelby went his own way. He was a contrarian. Uh, and if he didn't always, you know, stick to the straight and narrow, he went his own way anyway. And uh, Sam sold them, labeled to him for a million dollars at a time when he probably could have gotten five or ten million dollars from one of the majors. But he was not going to hook up with the corporate powers that be. And um, the way that really the way that uh, uh, Sun became known all around the world, to a large extent, it had to do with people like Colin Escott and Martin Hawkins. Um, but uh, Colin, who you know was the co-writer on, on this book, on our book, um, but they hooked up with different uh, labels in England and Europe, with the Charlie label, with other labels, and put out a mass of uh, the Sun catalog, much of it un, uh, you know, unissued, pre previously unissued, which Sam never would have let go. But uh, Shelby Singleton was a a merchandiser. He was a salesman. He was a promoter. And basically, he was looking to get as much out of this label he had bought as he could. And as far as he was concerned, he would license anything. And that's really how the world came to know of Sun Records to a greater degree. In some ways, it must have galled Sam because he, I'm sure he was not happy with a lot of the stuff that was released because he hadn't picked it. I don't mean because he was egotistical. I just mean because it wasn't by his standard up to the records that he had chosen before release. But on the other hand, it was a different world. And it was a world in which uh, the LP, which barely existed when Sam started, he put out very few uh, LPs when he was uh, active at Sun. And, uh, he, you know, the LP became a vehicle to deliver the music. And uh, Colin Escott and Martin Hawkins, uh, they uh, released a tremendous amount of the blues material which was not supposed to have been sold to Shelby. I mean, it arrived at, uh, in Nashville at Shelby's uh, headquarters almost by accident, and they put out all this unreleased blues material, which completely changed the view of the world about what Sam had recorded, because they, it, much of it had never been heard. So it's uh, another serendipitous uh, element entering the picture. All right, Peter. And uh, my guest has been Peter Goralnik, and the book is The Birth of Rock and Roll, The Illustrated Story of Sun Records. It's a treat and an honor to have you on, Peter, and hope we can do it again soon. All right. Well, thanks very much. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes back John Anderson for a discussion of John Kay and Steppenwolf. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 